Kosiewicki, the composer's diet of hunger only in the time was his play ne would never satisfy him. The orchestra was there the was voice an aura of the around Tanglewood in those days. The, uh, the students walked around in a kind of ecstatic slow. Voices in the wind. A report on the creative experience in a contemporary world. I'm Oscar Brand. Mine's just another voice in the wind. Today we'll celebrate the genius of the great conductor Serge Kusevitsky, whose byword was Dolce, and whose student Leonard Bernstein recalls his master's touch. We'll meet a wine expert who heats up when he hears the words room temperature. We'll listen to jazz man Dave Brubeck and his sons accompanying his comments with some jazzy counterpoint. And we'll hear reminiscences of Darius Millot, the great French composer who was Brubeck's teacher. But first, here's some catty doggerel from the American poet Ogden Nash. Lend me a 99-piece orchestra tutored by Kusevitsky. I don't want the ownership of it. I just want the use of it, Ski. Everyone, even the pop poet Ogden Nash, wanted the use of Itsky. That aristocrat of orchestras, the Boston Symphony, Kusevitsky had tutored it for a quarter of a century from 1924 until 1949, and by all standards, it was a remarkable tutorship, producing a symphonic golden age of lasting luster. Perhaps better than anyone of his time, Kusevitsky could teach musicians how to think about music. Baton sorcery and stick technique meant little to him. In fact, musicologists were fond of criticizing him for his loose, seemingly uncontrolled conducting style. Some of the members of his own orchestra believed that he hired a musician to play scores for him. But for Kusevitsky, it was all very simple. Music for him was always dolce, sweetness and light. Harry Ellis Dixon was a member of the Boston Symphony Orchestra for many years and is the author of Gentlemen More Dolce, Please, in which he offers a view of Kusevitsky from the player's perspective. I wish one could put his finger on the greatness of a man. Uh, Serge Kusevitsky was the kind of a man who approached music first from his heart and then with his head. He had an uncanny instinct for doing the right and the noble thing in music without too much studying without too much analyzing he knew exactly what the composer meant in many cases even better than the composer himself um, another thing that Kusevitsky had he had a great power of leadership Kusevitsky knew how to handle an orchestra he could make an orchestra play better than they themselves knew they could he treated each individual member of the orchestra, and each individual member of the orchestra felt that he was a great artist because Kusevitsky treated every person as an artist. There, was no, there were no 
second-class citizens in the Boston Symphony. Uh, he he uh, had a power of leading men. He had an iron will. He had a, a, a sincerity, a great purpose in life. His whole life was, was, was music and conducting an orchestra. And he had this power. He had, a, to my mind, the greatest conception of beauty of sound of any conductor I've ever played with. He's the only conductor who've ever, who's, who, whom I've ever worked with who rehearsed sound, beauty of sound. Remember, he used to say, gentlemen, we will rehearse it over and over again until, as he used to say, until we will not have that what it needs until we will not have our sonority. And he would rehearse pieces over and over again until we get this, this gorgeous, with him, to him, music without beauty of sound. That's why in my book I say, gentlemen, more Dolce, please. Because to Kusevitsky, music was Dolce. If it wasn't sweet, it was music. And uh, I don't know whether even, he even uh, knew exactly what Dolce meant. To him, Dolce meant anything that's beautiful and anything that's together and anything that's right is Dolce. musician's picture of Kusevitsky, taken from the strings section. That was Harry Ellis Dixon talking. He was for many years a violinist with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And that sense of dolce he mentioned, that exquisite sweetness of tone that only Kusevitsky could draw from his orchestra, as in this performance of Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings, had its source in Kusevitsky's own virtuosity. He was, in his own right, a soloist and performer of consequence. In fact, Kusevitsky's career began as an instrumentalist on the double bass. Some biographers say that he took up the double bass because it was the only instrument in Moscow's Philharmonic Society that was taught free. Others say he chose it because there was little competition. Well, whatever the reason, the instrument was a happy choice. Its sparse repertory stimulated Kusevitsky to compose a concerto for the double bass, which he performed himself in 1905. And by all counts, he was its master, an estimation we hear revealed now to our reporter Bob Wallace by Kusevitsky's second wife and widow, Olga Naumov, at Tanglewood in the Berkshires. He practiced the instrument every uh, day. Every day? And Yes, every day for at least 15, 20 minutes. Uh, after his rehearsal in the morning, he would have lunch and then an hour's rest. Meanwhile, his uh, valet would open the case of the double bass and he would get up and play um, for about 15, 20 minutes every day just for the joy of hearing his, the voice of the double bass and practice. Do you recall when he gave his last performance as a soloist? Yes, I, of course I remember the performance in Symphony Hall in 29. I was so excited by this that I, <laughs> coming home, I say to him, oh, you must, you must give up everything <laughs> and be, uh, and always uh, play the, so of course it was just a moment of great enthusiasm because um, the 
double bass, great as was his playing, ne would never satisfy him. The orchestra was the voice of the orchestra, the, the uh, enormous um, the satisfaction he had to always bring alive uh, old music as well as new music, encourage compo compositions and composers. And uh, that was a tremendous world, unending achievement. And that was uh, something that uh, so completely has absorbed his interest. Uh, the other day, uh, the Voice of America uh, played his old recordings. Yes, he made some records about that time, too, didn't yeah. he, as a soloist? And uh, the uh, lady who listened to the recording said, it's un unbelievable, I can't believe, is this really a double bass or is some uh, remarkable cello that I, she, I, you know, I said, it is the double bass, it is his beloved Amati. There's a, a peculiar lightness, I guess you'd call it, about it's his playing. The singing you... quality, you see, which is extraordinary. Uh, and the uh, diapason, you see, from deep to the very high notes were uh, really an ex uh, so really something of a uh, miracle, if you like, miraculous sound. soulful plaintive Serge Kusevitsky playing the chanson Trist, his own composition for the double bass. I think he was really a frustrated composer. The speaker is Aaron Copeland. He had such a passion about the need to introduce the new thing in music and if possible to make it palatable to audiences either through the brilliance of the performance or through repeating the work more than once or through the commissioning of new works for orchestra from contemporary composers through his uh, foundation that he set up for that purpose. Uh, he did everything he possibly could to advance this idea that we must continually freshen the orchestral repertoire and add to the great works of the past. I myself benefited several times with commissions that he gave me through his organization, through his foundation, uh, for the writing of pieces, so I know what it feels like from a personal standpoint. And throughout his 25-year leadership of the Boston Symphony, Kusevitsky constantly freshened the orchestral repertory with such fine compositions as Copland's Appalachian Spring, which you're now hearing. He conducted in his years with the Boston Symphony, 126 new pieces by 47 American composers. It began to be expected. One composer said, but maestro, you, you promised to play my piece this season, and you know you have a terrible weakness for making promises. Yes, my dear, he answered, but thank God I have the strength not to keep them. But no 20th century musician did more for the composer than Kusevitsky, 
the composer for him was foremost. As he himself said at the UNESCO House in Paris in 1948, The time has come when we artists, musicians, must understand how to help our needy composers and uh, gifted young students of music. How much do we owe to the composer? My answer is everything. The spiritual wealth of music, the cultural wealth of the great musical literature, of the past and present, the material wealth of the expanding musical industry and professions. In 1932, I was in Vienna and met Alban Berg. In the course of our conversation, he said to me, do you think, Mr. Kusivitsky, that composers die of hunger only in the time of Mozart? We are still dying of hunger now. We must never again have to listen to such an accusation. We must utilize all our forces, all our joint efforts to avoid the shocking unjust condition under which composers have lived for centuries. That was Serge Kusevetsky himself speaking at UNESCO House in Paris in 1948 on the occasion of the formation of the International Music Fund, which was organized to assist struggling composers. Kusevitsky himself was a composer, or as Aaron Copeland said before, a frustrated composer, and he was especially sensitive to the composer's problems. I said to myself, I don't need for my composition the money. I can live because I'm a player. But what is doing the composer? when he gives his composition and he has no money for that. In studying further, I learned horrible cases. For instance, Rachmaninoff, for his world-really-known small prelude, received $15. And the publisher really construct houses of the money they received for this prelude. Because, as you know, there only exists a piano. Who can play three notes on the piano knows it's a small prelude. Mm -hmm. Then I, I study further this situation, and I learned that even Tchaikovsky hasn't received nothing for his symphonies. In opposite, he gives songs uh, to the publisher house for nothing, only to help the publisher make money to print his symphonies. And this tragical situation makes me really a great defender to the composer. Although Kusevitsky championed the composer, he wasn't always as sympathetic to his musicians. With me long distance from Santa Fe, New Mexico, is Philip Hart, author of Orpheus and the New World, a book which concerns itself with the symphony orchestra in America as an institution. Now, Mr. Hart, you have a section in your book concerning Kusevitsky and the unions, especially his relationship with Cesar Petrillo, who was head of the American Federation of Musicians. 
Now, I've been a member of that organization for 30 years, and I was surprised by some of your stories. Mr. Hart, would you tell us about the union and Kusevitsky? Well, uh, it's, uh, the beginning of it was very simple, and that was that the uh, Boston Symphony Orchestra in the early 1920s strongly resisted unionization. It was the last orchestra uh, to be unionized. Uh, in the early 1920s, it went on strike. The orchestra was literally decimated. Uh, I remember Pierre Monteur telling me that at one point he conducted a concert with only 22 musicians. Uh, and uh, the Boston trustees broke the strike uh, and brought in Kusevitsky completely to rebuild that orchestra. A lot of them were players he brought over from Europe who had no uh, American Union connection. And uh, he could hire, fire, and discipline as he saw fit for, uh, shall we say, the uh, better than 10 years that he was first conducting that orchestra and whipping it into shape. Uh, I have always suspected that the main reason Kusevitsky was interested in, uh, changed his mind about the union, uh, was uh, that the union could cut off his uh, recordings and his radio broadcasts, which he felt were very important. And uh, this was, I think, uh, the major factor in getting Kusevitsky to change his mind, because uh, the union had forbidden uh, RCA Victor to record with the orchestra and to take it off the radio networks. And this was a source of income and a source of prestige to both the orchestra and Kusevitsky. Well, now, he did get the, uh, he did bring the uh, orchestra then into the union. Do you feel the union's requests at that time were too demanding and too large for an orchestra which was not really uh, making its living from what the public's, uh, public sale of tickets were? The uh, Boston Symphony was at that time paying union scale. The big issue was that the fact that the players were not in the union, they could not engage in outside work, uh with other orchestras, with, with pickup groups, uh, in uh, commercial work, and uh, so they were being penalized uh, to an extent that or other orchestras of comparable quality in New York and Philadelphia, for instance, uh, were not being penalized. The, uh, also, if a Boston player wanted to leave the Boston Symphony for any reason, or if Kuzovitsky were to fire him, he could not get another job in another orchestra in this country. So. Uh, these, I don't think these factors uh, worried Kusevitsky very much, but they certainly worried the men a great deal. I don't think that the unionization of the orchestra was unreasonable, nor do I think that the unionization of the orchestra in any way hurt the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Uh, and it, uh, it gave Kusevitsky and subsequent conductors a much wider choice of American musicians to bring into that orchestra. How do you feel concerning his status as a conductor compared to all those before and after him? Well, that would be a long story, and I'm not a critic. Uh, I would say, as an observer, that Kusevitsky's current uh, reputation is in considerable decline, just to judge by, let us say, the uh, reissues of phonograph records and interest in, in his performances. There are, I think, only one or two uh, examples of his major performance on uh, historic or reissue records and that sort of thing. But he certainly uh, hasn't posthumously commanded the reputation, say, of Stokowski uh, or of uh, uh, Toscanini, who were his great rivals at that particular time, or Mengelberg or Portwengler, uh, all of whom uh, seem to command a, a wider respect and interest nowadays. I think there'll be a revival in Kusevitsky, but uh, it may or may not happen. Well, thank you very, very much, Mr. Hart. I think... You've given us a 
a really wide report in such a short time. Those people who would like to hear more about Kusevitsky and the other members and conductors of symphony orchestras should turn to Orpheus in the New World by Philip Hart, with whom we've spoken, who is now in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Thank you, Mr. Hart. Thank you. Voices in the Wind, and I'm Oscar Brand. And today, in part, we're celebrating the genius of the great conductor Serge Kusevitsky. I guess one of his greatest legacies is the Berkshire Music Center at Tanglewood, the summer home of the Boston Symphony, which he established in 1937. Olga Kusevitsky recalls the birth of Tanglewood. By 1914, she decided that a great center of music and the arts ought to be established during the summers in, in uh, Russia. They were, the summers were short, but uh, usually sunny. And it would be a wonderful thing for the students as well as the public to uh, meet uh, in, in the, in, uh, on grounds outside of Moscow in a selected place where something of a palace of the arts would be built. And that, of course, explains that when he created Tanglewood here, he had in mind also to have a center of the arts. So you see, it was something that grew from within, from his experience, from his desire to do something of the, this kind, uh, not an academy, but just a center of the arts for, the, for young musicians studying under the, uh, the, under the Boston Symphony members and his, himself. Because so many of his younger students now became masters, and more younger people come up and show their talents and do not ever give up the thought of uh, uh, forgetting about Tanglewood. They still think of Tanglewood as a special place, as a place where they grew, like... Um, Michael Thomas, for example, when she first came here, and look, now she is uh, a full-fledged, wonderful, outstanding conductor. And still a very young man. And uh, Seiji Ozawa, and many of the others, but Seiji Ozawa was here from France. He couldn't even speak the language. And uh, he came up so wonderfully. Now, as uh, the uh, conductor of the Boston Symphony, it's a uh, one uh, example after the other, and Leonard Bernstein, who started his uh, whole future, started here in Tanglewood, and he never forgets it. He always feels that Serge Kusevitsky was his spiritual father. And one day at Tanglewood, while Kusevitsky's successor, Charles Munch, was rehearsing the Boston Symphony in a memorial tribute to Kusevitsky in 1961, Leonard Bernstein spoke rather emotionally about his beloved teacher. I'm speaking from the shed at Tanglewood on August 12, 1961. And I'm filled with emotions, memories, nostalgias, regrets. Ten years ago, this very day, I conducted the first Kusevitsky Memorial Concert. He had just died on the preceding June 4th. We played the Misa Solemnis in his honor. 
And tonight, ten years to the day and the date, we are playing another program in his memory. Actually, the memories go back much further than the ten years. They go back, in fact, 21 years to 1940, when Tanglewood first opened. And I came as a student of 21 or 2 or something like that to study with Kusevitsky at Tanglewood. I had only just met him at the audition, and I was on my knees, of course, with reverence. But I was not prepared with all the impressions I had had of him, of his glamour, of his devotion, dedication, of his high insistence on the finest quality and his relentlessness about music, I was not prepared for the incredible zeal that I was to find here at Tanglewood. He, his teaching methods were what one might call inspirational rather than didactic. He taught by allegory almost. He taught by symbol, sunshine, warmth, storms, tragedy. But he always made you know a meaning in the music. In addition, of course, to very practical teaching as well. There was an aura around Tanglewood in those days. The students walked around in a kind of ecstatic glow, as I recall, somewhat off the ground, about six inches off the ground. Nobody ever slept. We talked music and played music day and night, listened to music, absorbed it like blotters, and over it all was this tremendous atmosphere of Kusevitsky, making it all gala, making it all a terribly important event. He had that quality of making everything an important event, a cup of tea, a joke, anything. And that is what I miss mostly since his death. In the last 10 years, I find that things have changed. That glow is a little bit gone. I'm not speaking only of Tanglewood. I'm speaking of the world of music. There is something irreplaceable about, in music, that Kusevitsky brought to it. When he walked on the stage to do a concert, it didn't matter what the piece was, whether it were the Eroica of Beethoven or a controversial new work or even a work that might turn out to be of rather slighter importance. When he walked on the stage, this was the major moment of history. It was like the culmination of thousands of years of history. One moment after another, concert after concert, piece after piece. It was an incredible talent he had for this. And Lord knows we have many great performers and conductors in the world now but I have never seen one match this quality of importance and gala. He gave to music the feeling of a constant festival. He made his audiences sit up and shine the way he did. I don't think that can ever be replaced.
Eccles Largo, played by Serge Kusevitsky. In 1933, there was a fire in the concert hall, but Kusevitsky continued to conduct his orchestra. Later, when the danger is over, one of the musicians asked the maestro why he hadn't at least hurried the performance. And Kusevitsky answered, Tranquility is tranquility. I'm Oscar Brand. Voices in the Wind will continue in 30 seconds on NPR National Public Radio. Once again, this is Oscar Brand, bringing you Voices in the Wind. And one of those voices is that of Charles Christopher Mark, the publisher of the Arts Reporting Service, who has some surprised observations on anniversaries in the world of art. I am constantly amazed at some of the strange practices in the arts. One of the strangest is the great degree of emphasis one art form will place on an historical occasion, while another will ignore it. For instance, the music world loves the occasion of some composer's birth or death anniversary as an excuse to overburden concert programs with his work. If the man happens to be a worthwhile composer, why isn't he played with some regularity instead of appearing in large chunks during the year he has been dead for 150 years and then not played much until the next salutary day? The theater and dance world seem to take commemorative years in stride. They don't make a big celebration out of the anniversary of Shakespeare's birth or the death of Fokin. They do dance works and plays that seem to fit the public mood whenever a reasonable chance comes along. However, the museum world is beyond understanding on this matter. Museum directors are by far the most history-minded of all people in the arts, but they seem oblivious to the important historical events. Do you realize that one of the most important events in the history of painting took place exactly 100 years ago this year? Have the museums brought this fact to anyone's attention? Hardly. It was 100 years ago that Monet, Renoir, Degas, Pissarro, and their friends rented a photographer's studio to display their paintings because they were not welcome in the Musée de Luxembourg. It was while viewing a work by Monet of the harbor of Le Havre that was titled Impression, that a critic sarcastically called all the work shown there Impressionism. The artists liked the label stuck on them, and they gave that name to the most popular art movement in history. It's necessary to understand that in 1874, the national government and its functionaries controlled art by sponsoring an annual show or salon, which was largely a showcase for selling artists to the public. Artists not exhibited in the annual salon were virtually damned to starvation, because there was no other means of reaching the public. Therefore, when Renoir and Degas, Impressionist group, rented space, it was a departure from the standard methods, something of a shocker all by itself. At any rate, the centennial of the birth of Impressionism is a marvelous time for the museums to celebrate and explain to the general public the significance of the event. By showing the dull academic paintings of genre and historical subjects, which were acceptable at that time in contrast with the colorful and bold paintings produced by the Impressionists, 
It would be an opportunity for the museums to enlighten visitors to their gallery. What did the Impressionists believe exactly? Well, they believed that since photography had come into existence, there was no need for artists to paint literal scenes anymore. They thought the painter should do what the camera couldn't do, that is, capture the essence of an object by manipulating its image. If one painted water, one should feel water in the way one painted. The object was to make the viewer feel as well as see the object by adding color, line, and pigment to bring out the qualities of the object. From that concept has come all of modern painting, but the museums seem to make little of it. Charles Christopher Mark of the Arts Reporting Service and a discussion of anniversaries, at least one that has been ignored. Voices in the Wind includes many who believe that gastronomy is one of the seven lively arts and that wine tasting is possibly the liveliest. Well, one of these is a French wine expert, Patrick Lachene, and he is talking to our Paris correspondent, Gerald Casabon. He's slightly exercised by the misconception of room temperature. When people say the temperature of the room, it was what our, our grandparents used to do when rooms were never more than 18 or 16 degrees centigrade. But in a modern life, where room is 25 degrees, well, for goodness sake, let's put it to you this way. The wine which can stand up the most heating is a red Medoc, the great Medocs, and they should never be served warmer than 19 degrees centigrade. On the other hand, Beaujolais, which often is served at room temperature is, as you know yourself, my dear friend, absolutely undrinkable. That should never be served at more than 10 degrees centigrade, which I believe is about 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Or even slightly cooler. Yes, even slightly. I'm like you, I like it very cool. But those are personal tastes. So we can say that 10 degrees for a Beaujolais, for a Chinon, for a Bourgueil, for any rosé wine should not be served at a warmer temperature. But by the way, you spoke of the, of the Bordeaux wines or the Burgundy wines. Why must they be at, at room temperature? I mean, does the wine, is the wine better at that uh, temperature? Yes, it's... One would almost what happens, say, I mean? But one would almost say it's a chemical composition. A lot of tannin in those wines, which can stand up to a certain warmth, which brings a bouquet out, whilst conversely, if you get a white wine which is too warm, the acid is brought out by the warmth, and then you just get an unpleasant acidy taste. Well, now let's turn to white wines. White wines ought to be, I suppose, served cooler, in any case, some of them, the dry white wines, but, uh, well, how cool? Well, again, I'm sorry I haven't got it in my head for the Fahrenheit, but in centigrade, I think you can say the coolest of all should be what we call the mousseux, the sparkling wines, not the champagne, the sparkling wines, which can be served at four or five degrees centigrade. Then after that comes the very sweet wines like the Sauternes and the Vin du Naturel, six to seven degrees. Then comes the champagne at about seven, eight degrees centigrade. Then the dry white wines, about the same temperature, seven or eight degrees, it's the Alsace, the Chablis, the Puy Fuissé, then you come to the very big 
wines such as white wines I'm talking about, such as the Premier Cru de Chablis and the Meursault, the Montrachet, those great white burgundies, they should be served at approximately 12 degrees Fahrenheit. That also applies, incidentally, to the great white wines of the Côte du Rhône, such as the Condrieux, the Hermitage. Those should be served about 12 degrees centigrade. When you drink a wine, you have to have a, a perfect glass. I think the quality of the glass and even the shape of the glass is important for drinking wine. Yes. The glass should, first of all, beginning from the bottom, should have a, a foot. In other words, you should never have to put your hand in contact with the bowl where the wine is, either it would so as not to warm it. A. It should be clear, perfectly clean. Crystal clear, then. Crystal clear, exactly. Perfectly clean, no colored, no colored glass, a white transparent so that your eyes can admire the color of the wine. Then it should have a large bowl, contain a fair quantity, and the top of the glass be slightly narrower so as to retain within the glass the bouquet of the wine. And finally, please, never, never pour more than two-thirds of the glass. Don't fill it up to the brim, then. Good God, no, because if you do, you can't twirl it around and smell the bouquet. That's the reason. Is there a last tip you would like to give to our listeners? A last tip? Well, I, simply this, that when they drink wine, don't be frightened by all the paraphernalia of the pundits. Just enjoy French wine as it should be drunk with pleasure in as much but never more than you can take. Patrick Lachen, wine expert, speaking with our reporter in Paris, Gerald Casabon. Paris is not only the capital of wines, but it's also been for many years the birthplace of great French music. And many of the works of Darius Millot, the great composer, who died at 81 in Geneva, Switzerland, were premiered in Paris. Now we're about to hear, reminiscing about Darius Millot, Odette Kadar Ricard who was with the Modern Languages Department at Oregon State University at Corvallis, Oregon. She was speaking to our reporter, Frank Woodman. She'd met Darius Millot at Mills College in Oakland, California in 1947. And in fact, Odette Kadar-Ricard was one of the first visitors from his homeland Millot had come in contact with since he'd fled Paris and the German army in 1940. He asked me all kinds of questions because I had just arrived from France and apparently uh, I was one of the first French persons that he was meeting since the end of the war. So we talked about the war. Of course, he's being um, Jewish. Mm -hmm. He was interested in, in the fate of the Jews during the war, even though he knew quite a bit about it. But I could tell him stories about some of the Jews I had known in my hometown in Chateaudun and also when I was in Paris. And uh, we, we talked more about these things. We, we talked more about France. You could see that um, he loved France very much and he had missed this long period during which he couldn't go back. And in a way, he had kept France very much alive in his heart. And I believe it's shortly after that, no, it was during the war that he wrote his Suite Française. Isn't that right? During the war, when he was at Mills. Yes, he wrote that uh, during the Second World War. That's it. This is it. And uh, in a way, to me, it is just like a, a novelist would be writing a novel about his own country when he's away from it, you see. This was his way of keeping in touch 
with, with the country. Because I think his sweet Francaise is very, is indeed very French. And uh, you can see right there, you can feel his love for the country and how his recollections were absolutely fresh. <laughs> How did his students react to him? You mentioned that they were like disciples and they loved him very much. Yes, mm -hmm. that's right. This is the feeling I had. There was a, a sort, I wouldn't say a mystical contact between the two, but almost. And uh, when they were trying to say something and they couldn't say it in words, immediately they would do it in music. Because quite often I would sit on their patio and uh, chat either with Madeleine or with Danielle and we could hear the class going on inside and uh, there was some talk but there was a lot of music being played also and I would imagine at that time it was improvisation he was very great at improvising mm -hmm. and uh, whenever something came to his mind then he'd come to the piano and play it and then his students would take it again you know on their own instruments and then pretty soon they would uh, build something together right there that was fascinating and in a way um, I don't think, at least with us, he did not discuss much his music. Because I remember I wanted to talk with him about this Suite Française. I had, I had bought a set and uh, I brought it along and of course I wanted him to autograph it, so he did. But uh, I wanted to discuss it with him and in a way, he was not very willing to talk about the way... Uh, intuition came to him, the way inspiration came to him. Uh, you could see it was something very personal, which he didn't share too much. You mentioned that he liked to talk about philosophy. At times, he was somewhat taken aback by the direction that existentialism, for instance, had taken with both Sartre and Camus. Um, he recognized what the war had done to us. After all, I think existentialism and the very black existentialism of Sartre and Camus were definitely influenced by the war. And this was something that this man could not understand because for him, a human being should never accept defeat. And uh, in a way, you can feel that in his music too, I think, this uh, great vitality that runs through it and this love of life. Joie de vivre. Joie de vivre, oui, voilà. <laughs> <laughs> Exactement. <laughs> heard from Odette Kadar-Ricard talking to our reporter Frank Woodman and uh, you were listening to part of Darius Millot's La Création du Monde. Millot was one of the first serious musicians to work in the jazz idiom. An American jazz man pianist Dave Brubeck studied composition and orchestration with him at Mills College in Oakland, California. Now Brubeck and his three sons Darius named for Millot Danny and Chris appeared in concert at Northern Michigan University in Marquette 
and our reporter Vincent Patterson talk with Brubeck and Mike Brunswick produce this portrait in sound. Right now, I think, is the greatest time to play jazz. Uh, I wish it had been this good in 1946. It would have changed my life a lot, but the public was very different then. And uh, the sometimes I, I, I think that uh, the, the Beatles, uh, although they kind of pushed classical music and jazz out of uh, the long good standing they had, they also did a lot of good in loosening up the audience and bringing in... Uh, uh, Indian music, which I had done, but the public wasn't aware of it, and a lot of other people had done it, but you needed some group with the uh, the following that the Beatles had, a real popular group, to kind of open things up, and I think they did, and they made people more aware of Bach, even, and of Baroque music, and uh, uh, so it, there is a, a, a much better audience now that whereas when I was coming up, you played one style. If you played a concert, it was pretty much the style of your group. Whereas today, I, I do everything. You can do anything at a jazz concert if it's a good audience. You can go to any style, and they're, they're usually more prepared for it than the audience of 46 or the 50s, even the 60s. The group on stage now is known as the Darius Brubeck Ensemble. What we have is kind of a mixture of three groups now on stage. Uh, Chris, playing trombone now, has a rock group called New Heavenly Blue. And uh, Mad Cat on harmonica is from New Heavenly Blue, so they're the rock element. And the rest of the fellows on stage are from Darius's ensemble. And of course, I represent the old guys, my old quartet. So you've got... The, the combination of the three things. Now I'm going to kind of bow out and let Darius take over. This tune that they'll do goes way back in jazz history to what they called the band call after intermission. You called the musicians back on stage and the people back to dance by doing as ridiculous a thing as you could think of on your horn and starting the set that way. This is written by Perry Robinson and it's called Call of the Wild. <laughs> I felt it was time that the country get exposed to different things in the simple kind of beats that we had been dancing to and listening to. And I just went on a, uh, a real crusade and did four albums trying to get away from 4-4 four, four 
you know a lot of the things I did. I and and uh, no one thought they'd be popular, and it became the most popular thing, uh, well, the most popular instrumental I think in jazz ever, and the mo the biggest selling album. And this was a complete breakthrough. It was a very avant-garde, and uh, so you never know what the public's ready for, you know, and what they'll go along with. I think my biggest contribution was not to give up because I was ready to do a lot of these things when the public just wasn't ready. So you have to abide your time. And uh, if, if you knew my first group with Cal Jader, we were into time signatures and the octet and the public just wouldn't go for it. So you, you finally, you, you just hang in there if you don't starve to death. And we came close to it. If you've seen any early pictures of me, when I weighed about 147, you know, it was lean and rough for years. But if you can, my wife has always said, if you can hang in and uh, not give up, and, and it took a lot of uh, courage on her part to raise six kids on the road and under the worst kind of conditions, believe me. Uh, we're both from the country and worked hard as kids, but nothing is as hard. I've pitched hay for a dollar a day and been a cowboy, and uh, but uh, nothing is as brutal as being on the road when you have no money and no place to stay and no place to feed your family. And that's... The main thing I, I think that we did as a family was hang in. A dozen years ago, I sat in this very same field. I was listening to the Dave Brubeck Quartet, making musical history. The man is still doing it. I give you Dave Brubeck and two generations of Brubeck. You have a, a lot of different choices. One is you can just give up on the public and uh, just uh, refuse to play for them anymore because you figure they're so stupid. Or else you can go out and say, well, uh, I'm going to make, uh, make it possible for me to exist and uh, entertain the public and at the same time maybe enlighten. I think in the early years we were trying to over-educate and um, had a message too much. 
you can you can uh, go too far that way and just turn everybody off like a preacher you know he's got to ease it in there <laughs> easy <laughs> and uh, you learn all that but uh, I often think uh, we discuss it every day I think in the in the band when we're in the car we were discussing it today and yesterday is uh, uh, how can you uh, survive and be an individual and still work for the public who produced this last portrait in sound. 
in which Dave Brubeck and Sons improvised some jazz and appropriate comments. Our reporter was Vincent Patterson, who was lucky enough to enjoy the entire Brubeck concert in Marquette, Michigan. This program came to you courtesy of everybody with funds provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Our producer is Robert Montego, production assistants Mary Lou Finnegan and Robert Molesky. Our engineers, Michael Batiste and Lee Thompson. I'm Oscar Brand, just another voice in the wind. This is NPR, National Public Radio.